Well, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to Matthew chapter 10, and we want to look at verses 1 through 6 this morning, as we had read for us, the 12 apostles sent to Israel. And let's ask the Lord to bless our study. Father, we do thank you for your word now. Minister to our hearts as we study together. Give me grace to, to teach accurately and clearly. Uh, some things in the text are a little difficult, but I pray that you would help me to make it clear. And so we just uh, commit our study time to you. Thank you for the ultimate teacher who is the Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. We are in Matthew, and uh, we have tracked our way through the book down to chapters 8 through 10, the authority of the king proving his prophetical right to the throne by fulfilling prophecy. Now, in Matthew 8 and 9, there is a strong emphasis on Christ's lordship authority. In relation to his kingdom miracles uh, performed over disease and demons. And that theme of Jesus' authority now continues on as we come to chapter 10. Chapter 10 really marks the second major discourse in the five discourses that are found in the book. Uh, Let me show them to you. Uh, Five discourses, the Sermon on the Mount, uh, long discourse, uh, Matthew 5 through 7. And now the second one, the commissioning of the twelve. There's uh, three other ones, the parables of the kingdom, chapter 13, community instructions, chapter 18, Olivet Discourse, uh, end times, Matthew 24, 25. We are in the second discourse here in chapter 10, the commissioning of the twelve. Well, as we move into chapter 10, uh, also note this connection. There are what I term the two bookends. Uh, summarizing Christ's ministry, his Galilean ministry, as seen in Matthew 4.23 and in Matthew 9.35, which tie to Christ's apostolic commissioning of the twelve disciples. And so note those summary bookend statements here in terms of the Galilean ministry. In 4.23, Jesus went about Galilee, all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease among the people. Very similar statement, the other bookend, 9.35, then Jesus went about all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the gospel of the kingdom, healing every sickness and every disease among the people. Well, in... Chapter 9, verses 36 through 38, Jesus said, The harvest is plentiful, but the labors, there's the breakdown, the labors are few. And therefore, disciples should pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out more labors. In chapter 10, we now see the disciples, in part, were themselves to be the answer to how they were to pray. They were to pray for labors. And now they are being sent forth as laborers. What characterized Christ's ministry was now to be multiplied in and through the ministry of the disciples. As they are given a specialized, and I emphasize, specialized apostolic commission. And I always think about the children's moment. Even if the kids don't get anything, hopefully the adults do. So, you know. (laughs) Chapter 10, verse 1, And when he had called the twelve disciples to him, he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out and to heal all kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. This marks about the midway point in Christ's earthly ministry. So the twelve disciples had been following Christ for some time at this point. 
The word disciple means learner or follower. It's really the idea of a learning follower. It's the idea of being a student. The word as used in the Gospels can denote true devoted followers. But it is also used sometimes uh, of mere curiosity followers. Who really were not sincere and in the end turned back from following Jesus. Context really determines which is in view, but Christ kind of indicated what the true ones are about. In John chapter 8, 31, 32, Jesus said to those Jews who believed in him, by the way, we'll find that their, their faith here was kind of bogus. There's a genuine saving faith, and then there's a, there's a kind of faith, that, what the Bible calls a dead faith that doesn't really save. It's not a life-changing kind of faith. Jesus said to those uh, Jews who believed in him, If you abide in my word, here's the test. If you continue, if you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. The thing about a true disciple is is it sticks. It continues. And then he says, and you shall know the truth and the truth shall make you free. This, This applies to those who are disciples indeed. Well, before being appointed as apostles, they first needed to just learn from Jesus. You see, they were disciples before they became apostles. For about a year and a half, as I say, the first year and a half of Christ's ministry, the 12 disciples just, in effect, watched him. They interacted, they observed, but they did not, for that first year and a half, have a kingdom-announcing ministry like Jesus had. That was now about to change. As Jesus called the 12 disciples to him, the text says he gave them power over unclean spirits to cast them out, to heal all kinds of sickness, all kinds of disease. It's a new thing. They hadn't been doing this. Note, this is the very same type of miracles that Jesus himself had been doing, as seen in the summary verses of Matthew 4.23 and Matthew 9.35. This is what it meant to be an apostle, as they are now named to be as seen in the very next verse. They were empowered with a special calling to represent Christ in a very special special and personal way. They were Christ's unique, emphasis on unique, ambassadors, doing similar type miracles In effect, to be an apostle meant that they were uniquely an extension of Christ's ministry. They were his personal representatives, where they represented him in a very special and unique way. They now, too, were proclaiming the kingdom is at hand with visible demonstrations that indeed it was being presented to Israel on the condition of repentance, as noted earlier in chapter 4. Verse 17, we are not left to wonder what their message was. He says, as we'll get to this, Lord willing, next week, can't do everything today. I mean, really, it's through verse 15, it kind of all goes together here, but we'll take half of it today. But notice, he says to them, after empowering them to do these miracles, and as you go, preach, saying, the kingdom of heaven, which is to say, uh, the kingdom that will be ruled by the power of heaven. By the Messiah. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom's at hand. That's their message. 
Note that the kingdom and miracles of healing go together in keeping with Old Testament prophecy. When the Messiah God comes and ushers in the kingdom, he will do so with miracles of healing. Messianic text, Isaiah chapter 35, is very clear. Say to those who are fearful hearted, be strong, do not fear. Behold, your God will come. Who's coming? God. God the Messiah. Your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then what's going to happen? Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened. And the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. And it goes on from there in the Isaiah 35 passage. It was no small thing to be an apostle. They were empowered to do special, you ready for this? Kingdom miracles. That's what they were doing. Kingdom miracles. That no one else other than the Messiah could do. And they could only do it. Because they were his special authoritative representatives empowered by him. No small thing to be an apostle. Very unique calling. In 2 Corinthians chapter 12 verse 12, Paul says, Truly the signs of an apostle. What kind of signs are we talking about? Well, he goes on. Truly the signs of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. These are the kind of things that uh, were the signs of a true apostle. Not everybody did this. If they would do this, you say, well, well, I can do it too. So you think you're an apostle? No big deal. I'm doing the miracles too. No, 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 no. These were the signs of an apostle. I share this because today various wild-eyed charismatic teachers want to claim that they too are apostles. It's kind of become a movement out here. And they want to claim they're apostles in the same sense as Christ's apostles. They have the same kind of kingdom power. That's crazy talk. It really is crazy talk. They say it with a straight face, but it's still crazy talk. The true apostles' ministry was very unique. In effect, being an extension of Christ's power ministry. His kingdom power ministry. And note the extent of their newfound apostolic ministry. Just like Christ, they were given power over unclean spirits and over All kinds of sickness and all kinds of disease. I challenge any professing false teacher, apostle, is this what's happening in your ministry? Absolutely not. Backaches do not count. Now, they're important. Don't get me wrong. (laughs) They're just not quite the same as raising people from the dead, if you know what I mean. Their ministry at this point was very extensive, just as Christ was, which is indicative indicative of the coming kingdom. Their ministry had a very specialized kingdom purpose at this point that was totally unique to this time period and context. Now, on behalf of Christ as his special apostolic ambassadors, they were presenting the kingdom as being at hand with the kingdom evidence of miracles. Truly, this was kingdom stuff. Kingdom stuff. It's amazing how much messed up theology there is around the, the subject of the kingdom. It's really not that complicated, and yet it's amazing how much false teaching has come into the church to completely confound and complicate the matter. 
This was kingdom stuff that was happening through Jesus and his apostles. Little, a little sample, a little preview, uh, foreshadowing of the coming kingdom. This was true kingdom stuff. However, as we go along, we find that Israel rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and the kingdom offer was then withdrawn and delayed. It's put on hold. You see, we are no longer at this time in the church age proclaiming the kingdom is at hand. Because you see, the kingdom right now is not being offered and is not immediately at hand. Right now, what are we proclaiming? Well, we are not proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom is at hand. The good news of the kingdom is at hand. Right now, we're proclaiming the gospel of Christ. And not the gospel of the kingdom as being at hand. You know what's imminently at hand? It's not the kingdom. Well, that's going to come in due season. But what's imminently at hand is the coming of the Lord is at hand. Philippians 4, 5, the Lord, Lord is at hand. James 5, 8, the coming of the Lord is at hand. Looking for the blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what's really at hand. However, once the church is raptured, we're out of here. Then the gospel of the kingdom will again go forth to the ends of the earth as the kingdom will then truly be on the horizon. This is the context, by the way, of Matthew 24. People quote Matthew 24 like it's written in, in some kind of isolation. You know, I, in my teaching ministry, I emphasize thinking in context all the time. It's one of the great things to learn is to think in context. Don't just take a snippet here and a snippet there. You can make the Bible say anything if you do that. Think in context. What is the context of this statement? Matthew 24, 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations. And then the end will come. Well, this context in Matthew 24, if you've studied much at all, you realize that's a tribulation context. It's not a church age context. This is a tribulation context. And so here's where we are. As far as things to come, we're right here, I think. I don't know. What, maybe we're a little, I don't know. We're, we're here. We're, we're in the church age. I'm not setting any dates. I don't know. But I think we're getting close. But that's just me. We've been, Paul thought we were getting close too, right? Uh, we're much closer than when we first believed, he says in Romans 13. So we're getting closer. We know that for sure. But we definitely are not setting any dates. We're to live ready, right? We're always to live ready. I mean, that's just where we're to live. But we are living in the church age. Now, between us, uh, the church age, and the kingdom over here, at the second coming, Christ comes to set up the kingdom. Between us and the kingdom is this seven-year tribulation period. That's why we right now are preaching the gospel of Christ. And whosoever comes to Christ uh, becomes a part of the church, what is called the bride of Christ, who is one day going to come when he takes us out. We're going to him, the, the official uh, wedding, the, the marriage of the lamb, right? We're going to be formally joined to Christ. And then he's bringing his bride back and we're going to reign with him. 
Here's where there again, uh, the kingdom was offered this side of the cross. Israel rejected it. Now we're preaching the gospel of Christ, the good news of, of Christ and what he has done for us so we might be forgiven and have eternal life. But, and, and of course, they will understand that too in the, in the tribulation. But they really will be saying the kingdom is, is on its way. And they will be preaching that gospel of the kingdom it will go through the ends of the earth. We're not proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom is at hand because it's been delayed. And we will see that as we go further on into the parable section in Matthew chapter 13. So we're here. Uh, next event on God's prophetic calendar is the rapture of the church, perhaps today. It'd, be, it'd really kind of be sad if it happened at this point in history because we wouldn't be able to make the move over to the other building. <laughs> Just kidding. I'm all about it. Bring it. Bring it. Oh, my. Yeah. So, but then once the church is raptured, <clears throat> you know, by the way, uh, how come we got seven years of tribulation and not eight? Well, it's because of the, this little prophecy back in Daniel chapter 9 called the 70 weeks of Daniel. A week is a seven-year period. And these special weeks, these 70 units of seven, are related to God's special dealings with his people Israel in relationship to Jerusalem and Daniel's people, the Jews. All of those 70 weeks relate to Israel. They're not directed at the church. Daniel specifically tells us this. So don't tell me, well, the, the church is in here somewhere. We're in, we didn't have anything to do with the first 69 weeks, and we don't have anything to do with the 70th week either. We're out of here. Uh, this is the blessed hope of the church. The dead in Christ will rise first, and then we're going to join them shortly thereafter. I mean, within a moment. In this so small amount of time. So anyway, a key thing to note in Matthew 10.1 is that Christ had the authority to delegate this kind of power. And this shows his greatness as only God can do this. Alfred Plummer says, this was without a precedent in Jewish history. Not even Moses or Elijah had given miraculous power to their disciples. Elijah had been allowed to transmit his powers to Elisha, but only when he himself was removed from the earth. And William MacDonald says, other men had performed miracles. God had empowered them to do this. Uh, some of the prophets in the Old Testament and so forth. Other men had performed miracles, but no other man ever conferred the power on others. That is unique in terms of the, the messianic ministry of Jesus Christ. Actually, the word translated as power here in verse 1 in my New King James Version is the Greek word exousia, exousia, meaning authority instead of dunamis, which would mean power. So this is Christ having authority to impart authority to do the supernatural. Well, who has the authority to impart the authority to do the supernatural. Who has that kind of authority? Just God. That's all. Just God. Only God has this kind of authority. So this emphasizes Christ giving them the right to do it. Not merely the power. Again, only God can give this kind of authority resulting in this kind of power. And this once again highlights the lordship authority of the Lord Jesus Christ, which has been the theme in chapter 8, chapter 9, and now on into chapter 10. Well, verse 2 continues. 
Now, the names of the 12 apostles are these. First, Simon, who is called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, his brother. Well, along with supernatural powers given to them in verse 1, came this special title of apostle. I reference you to the children's moment. The word apostle means set one. Sent one. And it's used in a general sense in the New Testament. And it's also used in a technical sense. So let's note uh, this. General sense, uh, it translates messengers of the churches. Kind of like missionaries are, are sent out. But, but they are, in effect, the apostles, the sent ones of the churches. Not, not apostles of Christ in that sense. So it's used in a general sense, as we find in 2 Corinthians 8.23. It's also used in a technical sense. Apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ, Jude 17, would be an example. We're talking about the technical sense here. The apostles of Christ had the highest position in the church. They were special representatives with special powers who gave us the New Testament, which was authenticated with supernatural apostolic signs. So note, the apostles were special. And boy, I mean, you, this is a big deal. You say, well, who cares? I, I, it's a big deal out here in Christendom anymore. We got so much false teaching that is built around errant teaching. Note the, these people, uh, the 12 apostles. Uh, the church was founded upon them. They were eyewitnesses of the risen Lord. They were personally chosen, personally by Christ, personally chosen and commissioned by Christ. You say, well, we only have 11 in that category because Judas went out and hung himself and, you know, betrayed the Lord first. Uh, well, he was replaced. And, uh, you know, there's a little debate as far as who replaced him here. But I submit to you, the Apostle Paul was personally chosen by Jesus Christ. He's the replacement in my mind. But anyway, number four, authenticated by unique miracles, as we've noted. Number five, spoke for Christ with absolute authority. I mean, they, were, they represented him on that level. Number six, all New Testament truth was communicated through them. Christ said to the apostles, when the Spirit comes, he will guide you into all the truth. Definite article there in John 16, 13. The definite, completed body of truth. The Spirit will guide you into all the truth. And we believe, based on what they said, they were the ones that had the authority uh, to give forth this message and speak for Christ. And number seven, the 12 have an eternal place of special honor in the New Jerusalem. And there's 12 that are mentioned. The 12 apostles have this special place of honor. Not 13, not 11, but 12. Well, anyone that today claims to be an apostle of Christ, in the technical sense of the word, is a false teacher and a liar. You see, even in the early church, people started claiming to be an apostle, and that was a problem. Uh, people like to kind of make themselves out to be somebody who, boy, I speak with authority here. Well, Christ uh, spoke to the seven churches in the book of Revelation. John is an old man. The last living apostle was giving this message called the book of Revelation. And he addressed seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And to the church at Ephesus, Christ says this. I know your works, your labor, your patience, and that you cannot bear those who are evil. You don't put up with it. 
And you have tested those who say they are apostles and are not and have found them liars. Christ is commending them for this. You see, people that falsely claim to be apostles need to be called out for the liars they are. And Christ approves this message, by the way. Christ chose 12 special disciples who learned from him personally. Then he further empowered them to do kingdom miracles in his name. And with the power, and with that power, came the title of apostle. Designating them as Christ's very special authoritative representatives. And then the twelve are named. I'm going to go through this. Are they not named? You see them there, right? I don't, it's, okay, it's okay. Believe me, it's okay. Uh, we have a, a chart of the apostles, even though it's invisible. <laughs> For whatever reason. Uh, but... Uh, there are several lists of the apostles found in Matthew 10, 2 through 4, Mark chapter 3, 16 through 19, Luke chapter 6, 14 through 16, and Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. And uh, these lists uniformly always name Peter first and Judas Iscariot last. In every one of these lists. And there are consistently three groupings of four, although the names are not always in uniform order. And it seems that they may be named in pairs because it says in Mark 6, 7, they went out two by two. But note here, note here in our study here in verse 2, the text says, first Simon Peter, first Simon who is called Peter. Peter is always named first, as I say, in all four listings that we have in the scripture. And the word first here, we believe, emphasizes his prominence among the apostles. Peter was a leader of leaders. He was a leader. And the word first here, we believe, denotes him as being first, if you will, among equals. One commentator says in Matthew 10, 2, the word first does not refer to the order of selection because Jesus called Andrew Peter's brother before he called Peter. In this context, protos, uh, first, indicates foremost in rank. The apostles were equal in their divine commission, authority, and power. And one day they will sit on equal thrones as they judge the 12 tribes of Israel. But in terms of function, Peter was the first and foremost member of the 12. No group can function properly without a leader. And Peter was the leading member of the 12 from the beginning. So I think the idea first here. When it says first Simon, who is called Peter, is really first among equals. He was the, he was the most prominent of the 12 disciples uh, who became apostles. Well, Peter is called the apostle with the foot-shaped mouth. I kind of resemble him sometimes. Uh, no one is rebuked by the Lord more than Peter, because perhaps because he was always talking. But Peter also had the great confession. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. But then he turned right around and rebuked the Lord for talking about getting killed, only to, hear, only to hear Jesus say, get behind me, Satan. Peter sincerely said he was willing to die for Christ and whipped out his sword to prove it when they came for Jesus. But then he also denied the Lord and was restored in the resurrection. Peter had a good heart and he was full of passion. It's just that his mouth often got him in trouble 
And so the Lord went to work on him. And in the end, used him greatly. John MacArthur wrote a book about the apostles titled 12 Ordinary Men. And that's really what they were. God took 12 ordinary men and used them in an extraordinary way. And God specializes in this. He wants to use you and me. Andrew was Peter's brother. And he was a more quiet figure. Peter was the noisy one. Andrew was more quiet. There's always one in the family. (laughs) I'm the noisy one. Anyway. But it was, uh, it was Andrew who brought his brother Peter to Jesus. Both Peter and Andrew were fishermen by trade in terms of background. After naming Peter and his brother Andrew, James the son of Zebedee and his brother John are named. Now these brothers too uh, were fishermen who worked with their father Zebedee. James became the first apostolic martyr as seen in Acts 12. And Jesus gave James and John the nickname Sons of Thunder. You know why he gave them that nickname? Well, it was evidently because they had motorcycles. That's all I can figure out. (laughs) But seriously, uh, this evidently speaks of their aggressive nature. These guys were something. They were Sons of Thunder. They were movers and shakers, all right. But it's interesting. God went to work on them too, didn't he? And John went on to write five books in the New Testament, namely the Gospel of John, 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John, and the book of Revelation. And with his great emphasis on love, he became known as the Apostle of Love. Imagine that, being converted from a son of thunder into the Apostle of Love. Even so, John's style is to write in black and white. I mean, John, for every, John, boy, he wrote in vivid, very vivid colors. For example, John says, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. What, 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 what are you talking about, John? Who keeps the commandments of the Lord? I mean, I, that was the law. Uh, yeah. <laughs> John says, we know that we know him if we keep his commandments. 1 John 2, 3, it's right there. Inspired scripture. And again, John says, we know that we pass from death into life because we love the brethren. Well, I, I, sometimes I have a little, little problem here. How about you? I mean, uh, John MacArthur writes, From reading John, one might think that righteousness comes so easily and naturally to the Christian that every failure would be enough to shatter our assurance completely. That is why when I read heavy doses of John, I sometimes have to turn to Paul's epistles just to find some breathing space. Of course, both Paul's and John's epistles are inspired scripture and both emphases are necessary. The exceptions dealt with by Paul don't nullify the truths stated so definitively by John and the relentlessly unequivocal statements of John don't rule out the careful qualifications given by Paul. Both are necessary aspects of God's revealed truth and they are. Well, next we have named as apostles, verse 3, Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the text collector. By the way, I've got a little song that I learned in Bible college about the 12. There were 12 disciples. I was going to teach the children this, but I thought that is way too complicated. You think this was bad what I taught them this morning as far as complicated? That would have really, I I said, this is going to take a half hour. I can't do that. Anyway, (laughs) Philip and Bartholomew, Thomas and Matthew, the tax collector, James, the son of Alphaeus and Labius, whose surname was Thaddeus. Now, it was Philip that brought Nathanael to Jesus, John chapter 1. Furthermore, many think that another name for Nathanael is Bartholomew. When the apostles are listed, Philip and Bartholomew are always linked together. 
And some think perhaps they were, this is because they were close friends or perhaps even relatives. Uh, it was Bartholomew, otherwise known as Nathaniel, that Jesus paid tribute to in John 1.47. Boy, he gave him a high compliment, didn't he? Here's what Jesus said to Nathaniel. Jesus saw Nathaniel, we think he was Bartholomew, coming toward him and said, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in, in whom is no deceit. Boy, I'd love that if I was to meet Jesus and he'd say that to me. That, that's, a, that's a great compliment. Thomas. Thomas is also called Didymus, which means twin. Evidently, he had a twin. And uh, he is often called, what do we call him, the man from Missouri? Uh, doubting Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Because he refused to believe in the resurrected Christ without being able to personally see him. However, upon seeing Jesus, he made the climactic confession of faith in the gospel of belief, the gospel of John, as found in John 20, 28. And what did he say? Thomas answered and said, my Lord, personal, my God, personal. And Jesus said, you have seen and believed. This is what it means to believe in Jesus. Let those who question the deity of Christ meet Thomas. Matthew, the tax collector, by background, is only labeled this way, by the way, in the Gospel of Matthew, which was written by Matthew. That certainly shows humility and emphasizes great grace that he experienced in salvation. You see, as a tax collector, he was brought from the most despised position in Jewish culture, in Jewish thinking, to the most honored position as an apostle. James, the son of Alphaeus, is mentioned only in the list of the apostles. We don't know anything else about him. And isn't it great that God chooses uh, nobodies who are basically unknown, and yet they also serve a very important purpose in the calling of God? Labius was uh, chosen, whose surname, that is his family name, was Thaddeus. Uh, Labius, uh, it appears, actually went by three names. Uh, Labius, Thaddeus, and, and Judas, not Iscariot. The word Thaddeus means beloved. It is surmised that he may have been called Judas the Beloved to distinguish him from Judas the Betrayer. And then there was uh, Simon the Canaanite and Judas Iscariot who also betrayed him. Now Simon the, the, the Canaanite here, that's really not a good translation. Uh, it's rendered in the older manuscripts as Simon the Canaan, uh, Canaan. Uh, which is the Aramaic form of the word zealot. And we believe this is accurate. Uh, in the cross-references, for example, in Luke 6.15, uh, Matthew, Thomas, James, the son of Alphaeus, and Simon called the zealot. Now, it is thought that prior to his conversion, Simon belonged to the militant sect called the zealots. Now, he's a fiery guy. In a militant way, this sect sought to free Judaism from the bondage of Rome. And they were fanatic about it. They were willing to die for it. Uh, they lynched people whom they considered to be traitors, quietly. Kind of had special hitmen. Uh, you want to take him out? He's a traitor. Uh, prior to his conversion, a zealot like Simon, Simon the Zealot, would have sought the death of a Jewish tax collector like Matthew. Think about this. What a motley crew. In terms of background, Jesus, Jesus chose as his apostles ordinary fishermen, a despised tax collector, and a passionate zealot. 
Only the Lord could take this mix and make them into an apostolic band that became so united in Christ that they were willing to die for Jesus. Jesus himself was their bond. Their unity was found in Jesus. He is the one who changed their lives. And finally, there was Judas Iscariot, who also betrayed him. What an amazing thing. This this is one of the most amazing things in the New Testament to me. Uh, Judas, too, was called an apostle. Most believe that Iscariot means man of Kirioth, uh, which was a town in Judah. And if so, it would make Judas Iscariot the only apostle to hail from the region of Judah. You know, the more sophisticated region down there by Jerusalem versus those hillbilly Galileans up there. The the rest of the disciples were all Galileans. So uh, if that's true, uh, it's talking about uh, where he was from down here in Judah versus the rest of the disciples up here from the region of Galilee. Now, amazingly, Judas Iscariot, the betrayer, also received authority to perform miracles. You see, Judas not only saw Christ perform unparalleled miracles, but he also did kingdom miracles himself. Yet, in spite of it all, his heart remained unchanged. He is called the son of perdition, which literally means son of destruction. In John 6, 70, speaking of Judas, Jesus said to his disciples, And one of you is a devil. Jesus said it would have been better for him never to have been born. Well, this serves to remind us that no matter how close to the things of God one may be, no matter how close to miracles and the power of God, yet that does not necessarily result in conversion. Hebrews 6 and 10 both warn about those who have intimate contact with the things of God and yet do not enter in. Billy Sunday properly said, Many slip into hell with their hand on the doorknob of heaven. Jesus said that if people are not converted by the word of God, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. That's a sobering thought. Judas had every opportunity, if anyone ever did, and yet his heart Remained hardened. Oh, he played the part of the hypocrite and he did it very well. You would have definitely thought he is one of us. All the time he was really in the movement for what he could get out of it. Oh, he liked the popularity. He liked the kingdom talk. And I'll bet he really smiled when he was able to pull off uh, a miracle. But he never really loved Jesus for being Jesus. That's what true believers do. They love Jesus for being Jesus. And when Jesus started talking about dying instead of the kingdom, as you transition in Jesus' ministry, at first the emphasis is all the kingdom. Repent, the kingdom's hand. He's presenting the kingdom. He's offering the kingdom. But when they rejected him, there's a change in Matthew chapter 13. And now all of a sudden, he starts talking about going to the cross. Well, when that happened... Judas started thinking, if the kingdom movement is over, I might as well salvage what I can by getting a few shekels out of this position and then move on. The Lord of Judas was Judas. 
not Jesus. Judas was a first-hand witness of Jesus' life and miracles. He himself did kingdom miracles. He heard all the warnings. He knew the message well. And yet he is an example of those who go to hell with their hand on the door of the knob of heaven, so to speak. So close, and yet so far. There are Judases in every age, people who seem to be true disciples, close followers of Christ, but then who turn against him, what we call apostatize, for sinister and selfish reasons. Verse 5 and 6. These twelve Jesus sent out and commanded them, commanded them, not a suggestion, commanded them saying, do not go into the way of the Gentiles. I speak to Gentiles this morning, right? No, you're the church, (laughs) for the most part. Uh, Do not go into the way of the Gentiles and do not enter a city of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The twelve now named as apostles were to go forth proclaiming the kingdom as being at hand, doing kingdom miracles. But they were not to go into the way of the Gentiles or enter a city of the Samaritans. They were not to head up north into the Gentile area of Tyre and Sidon. They were not to go north. They were not to go to Decapolis or south into the territory of Samaria which involved the mixed race of the Samaritans. So uh, Jesus' ministry, headquarters for his Galilee ministry was Capernaum. That's where we're operating out of, Capernaum. And so they're they're just to go to the lost sheep of the house. They're not to go up north here. They're not to go down into Decapolis. They're not to go to Samaria. Very clear. Just Jews. Just Jews. Now the Gospels record... Three Galilean tours in Jesus' earthly ministry. In view here is the second tour, in which with help from the twelve apostles, an in-depth canvassing of the entire territory is in view. They were about to saturate Galilee with the kingdom message, that the kingdom is at hand, evidence doing kingdom miracles. But note, they were not to go to the Gentiles at all but rather limit their kingdom ministry. And that's what it was. To the lost sheep of the house of Israel. The idea of lost sheep ties back to chapter 9, verse 36, where Jesus looked with compassion on the multitudes because they were distressed and downcast like sheep having no shepherd. They had no faithful spiritual leaders to guide them into the truth. The intentional concern at this point was the lost in Israel, and not the Gentiles. Likewise, in Matthew 15, 24, Jesus said, I was not sent except to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. Now this has troubled some people. Why concern only for the Jews and not the Gentiles? Speak the Gentiles. Stanley Toussaint says, This restriction of the ministry of the twelve apostles to Israel has caused a great deal of trouble to many students of the Bible, specifically those who fail to hold to the dispensational viewpoint of Bible interpretation. You see, dispensationalists, of which I am one, make a distinction between God's program for Israel and God's program for the church. That's the major point. 
in dispensationalism. Many theologians see just one people of God through the ages and therefore call the church the spiritual Israel. God's done with physical Israel and now the church is spiritual Israel, they say. However, that's really not accurate. The Bible makes these clear distinctions. Note these three biblical categories, of people categories. The Jews are the, uh, the physical descendants of Abraham through Jacob. The Gentiles are non Jewish people, and the church are believers in Christ consisting of both Jew and Gentile background. Uh, but they're believers in Christ. They're now they're called the church. And so Paul says here in 1 Corinthians 10.32, give no offense either to the Jews or to the Greeks, that's the Gentiles, or to the church of God. Now let's think about this theologically for just a few moments. God is a God of order, and plan. You know, a person can think whatever they want to think, but in the end, God is God, and being God, he can do whatever he pleases. And he does. You see, God didn't ask anybody's permission on whether he uh, should choose Israel. There was not a general council. We need to have consensus, guys. No. You know, he didn't even invite our input. He just did it according to his own good pleasure. So the age-old question is, why did God choose Israel? Why did he? Do you know why he did? The age-old answer is, because he wanted to. Why did he want to? Because he wanted to. You say, that's not good enough. It's what we got. Lesson number one, this is God's world. He's in charge. He has a plan of his own devising for his own glory. And we have no say in the matter. And it doesn't even matter whether it makes sense to our three-pound brains, large as they are. The challenge for us is to align with God's thinking, with his program, not to get him to align with our thinking. And a lot of people got it backwards. They want to massage a Jesus, a God that kind of fits with their preconceived ideas. You'll never be a believer if you're in that camp. We need to align our thinking with God's thinking. And by the way, this is called repentance, which means to have a change of mind in which we align our thinking with God's thinking. Psalm 33, verses 10 and 11. The Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. Think all those leaders are pretty smart. They know the way. I don't care who your political leader is. He should memorize these verses. Not that we despise them. We pray for them. They need, they need prayer, for sure. But the Lord brings the counsel of the nations to nothing. He makes the plans of the people of no effect. That's what God does. Man's got this ego. Show me a politician without an ego, and I'll show you a former politician. <laughs> Just, I mean, exceptions, I'm sure, but few. The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of his heart to all generations. So here is God's plan as he has revealed it to us in the Holy Scriptures. There is one God-chosen nation in the world, and that is Israel. Through the Jews, we were given the Scriptures. You have a copy of the Holy Bible? Find a Jew this afternoon and thank him. You have no clue what you're talking about, but go ahead. Through the Jews, we're given the Scriptures. 
God gave the covenants involving how he relates to mankind. God gave the covenants to Israel. The Messiah, we're on a roll. The Messiah is Jewish. Jesus said, salvation is of the Jews. And guess what? The kingdom comes through the Jews. This is God's plan. This is God's plan. You say, I don't like that plan. Repent. Get on board with God's plan. It's his idea. It's his plan. Remember the context here. Jesus and his apostles are on the scene presenting the kingdom to Israel on the condition of repentance. John the Baptist did not go to the Gentiles saying, repent the kingdoms at hand. He went to the Jews. Jesus went to the Jews. Repent the kingdoms at hand. This is all prior to the church age. It's a time of kingdom presentation. But since Israel rejected her Messiah, the kingdom offer was temporarily withdrawn and is now on hold. Oh, it's still coming, but there's, there's a delay. There's now a parenthesis program called the church. Because Israel rejected her Messiah, God has temporarily set Israel aside and is now doing a brand new thing called the church in which he is building a forever family of believers consisting both of Jew and Gentile. But the context here in Matthew 10 is kingdom-oriented. The kingdom at this point was at hand in the sense of being offered to Israel. The Messiah is Jewish. He is the Jews' Messiah, meaning the special coming one who would be their deliverer and ruler. You see, the Messiah is not coming to Omaha. He's not coming to Council Bluffs either. He's not. You say, I'm I'm thinking he is. No, he's not coming to Omaha. He's not coming to Council Bluffs to set up his kingdom. You know where he's coming? Read your Bible. You know where he's coming. He's coming to Jerusalem. He's coming to Zion. Luke chapter 1. And behold, Mary is being told, and behold, you will conceive in your womb, bring forth a son, shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and be called the son of the highest. And the Lord God will give him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of who? Council Bluffs. He will reign over the house of Jacob. How long? Forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. You see, the kingdom comes through this special descendant of David. Who we know to be Jesus Christ. It is he who will occupy the throne of David in Jerusalem. But what about this statement? What about this statement? He will reign over the house of Jacob forever. What about us? What about the Gentiles? Are they completely left out? Well, the answer is no. God's plan all along is that Israel be his channel of blessing for the entire world. It's God's plan. Goes back to that mother of all covenants, God's covenant with Abraham, where he said to Abraham, I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse him who curses you. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Welcome Gentiles to the table. 
Doesn't happen independent of this, though. As Gentiles accept the Jewish Messiah as Lord and Savior, they too have a place of blessing in the kingdom. Praise the Lord for prophecies like this in Isaiah 49.6. Indeed, he says, it is, it is too small a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to restore the preserved ones in Israel. He's going to do that, but that's too small a picture. There's a bigger picture. I will, ready for this, also give you as a light to the Gentiles that you should be my salvation to the ends of the earth. We're there. This verse shows that yes, God through his servant, the Messiah, is ultimately going to restore Israel, but he is also going to be a light to the Gentiles, which includes us in the church age who are Gentile by background. But the overall point is this. The blessings of the kingdom come to the world in conjunction with Israel accepting her Messiah. The kingdom will not come until Israel accepts Jesus as her Messiah. This is why the emphasis on Israel is made at this point. You see, the kingdom was being offered. Yes, God wants to bless the entire world through the Messiah with kingdom blessings. But it is conditioned upon Israel accepting Jesus as her Messiah. Peter, in his second great sermon after the day of Pentecost, said to the Jews in Acts chapter 3, Repent, therefore, and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out, so the times of refreshing may come. That's kingdom restoration. From the presence of the Lord, and that he may send Jesus Christ, who was preached to you before, whom heaven must receive. He's going to stay in heaven until the times of restoration of all things. Not coming back to the earth. Now he's going to come and stop halfway, you know, in the heavens. We're going to be caught up in the clouds. He's not coming back until the second coming. Whom heaven must receive until the times of restoration of all things. Kingdom restoration, which God has spoken by the mouth of all his holy prophets since the world began. What Peter is saying is that kingdom restoration will not come until there is national repentance in Israel. Jesus told Israel, you will see me no more until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Matthew 23, 39. We have this little nugget tucked into Romans chapter 11, verse 12, where Paul says, now if their riches be the riches, now if their fall is the riches for the world and their failure riches for the Gentiles, how much more their fullness? Upon the Jews' rebellion as seen in the rejection of their Messiah, God has turned his attention to the world of the Gentiles for the time being in the church age. This has resulted in many Gentiles coming to Christ and being spiritually blessed. So Israel's loss, in effect, has turned out to be the Gentiles' gain. Now, if that is true, how much more blessed will the world be when Israel is restored? That's his point. God's intention is that Israel be a channel of blessing to the world. And so the conversion of Israel will result in even greater blessings to the world when the kingdom is ushered in. So in the plan of God, the kingdom comes through Israel. And for this reason, at this point in his ministry, when the kingdom was being offered, the emphasis was singularly on Israel to see what their response would be. Now, of course, God, knowing all things, knew what their response would be. But it was indeed a legitimate offer. You see, God wants to bless the entire world, but invariably he does that through and in conjunction with his people Israel. 
They are uniquely his covenant people through whom God's covenant blessings to the world are administered. The scriptures are Jewish. The Messiah is Jewish. Salvation is of the Jews. And the kingdom comes in conjunction with the Jews. The gospel goes first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. That's the order of God's program. And I would ask you, who are we to argue? We believers who are Gentile by background are grafted in. And praise the Lord for it. As one Gentile believer is known to sign off on his correspondence, grafted in, but grateful. I don't know about you, but I'm grateful. I'm grateful I'm grafted in. I partake in that Abrahamic covenant because God's blessing comes to all of the whole world through the Messiah as they receive him. We now become part of the forever family called the church. And when that church family is completed, he's going to take us up. And then he's going to complete his program with Israel, culminating in the second coming when he comes to set up his kingdom. It's still coming. But his earthly ministry early on was just a sample, a foreshadowing of what is yet to be fulfilled. Grafted in but grateful, let's stand and have our concluding song and then I'll close us in prayer.